John, obviously, in 2 Peter, and we're in the, the heart of his book right now, the heart of the letter, dealing with false teachers, and we spent last week dialoguing with some truths about that, and now we're diving into some very uh, specific examples, but the driving theme is wrath and rescue. Uh, I kind of started this out, I was trying to give an illustration, because those two things are very uh, drastic, and in our world, we have put God in a neutral position and we oftentimes look at his love or his desire for mankind to be redeemed, and we forget about his wrath against sin and sinners. Um, he died for sinners, but he is against sin and against the filth and against breaking his law. And Peter helps us understand, as he's dealing with false teachers, the reality of, if you want to call it God's drasticness, he's never neutral. Uh, and thus, the idea of wrath and rescue. I know many of you are aware of this, but football season has just ended. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs have won another Super Bowl, and their investment in the referees have paid off. So I think it worked out well. Uh, speaking of football, though, I find myself to be a bit of an embarrassment uh, as a fan. Uh, some people I find are fiercely loyal uh, to their team. If you're a Kansas City Chief fan, you've turned me off right now. You just hate me because I made a joke about your team. That's loyalty that I admire, uh, but I find lacking in me. Those people that are loyal, uh, they have zero tolerance or zero regard for any other team in their division, and it's all split up into divisions, and oftentimes in all of NFL. All of NFL. I, on the other hand, have been a Washington fan since the 90s. My family moved to Virginia and I just went with the team that was closest. And so ever since we've been here, since 1990, I have been a Washington fan. In the early 2000s, I had a friend of mine that was a New York Giant fan, which, by the way, is in our division. And I thought, I kind of liked the Giants. I liked Eli Manning and how he played football and how he slid and was a little bit of a coward but still beat the Patriots. And so I kind of I appealed to me and who I am as a person. I find that I have nothing against the Dallas Cowboys, who are also in our division, and in all honesty, if the people from Philadelphia weren't so obnoxious, I could root for the Eagles. So I, I'm literally the worst fan in the world. Here's the big um, non-loyalty thing. I recently switched this year to being a New York Giants fan. I want to explain my reasons, and then I'll let you make fun of me from now until the end of time. 50% of the reason I switched is team colors. I went to Virginia Tech. Maroon and gold are the colors. Washington's team is maroon and gold. I'm sick of maroon and gold. And so I went with some good old blue sweatshirt. And you know what? I've been wearing my Christmas sweater uh, just to frustrate my brother-in-law, who's a Washington fan, who moved to Florida and still can't see why in the world I switched to the Giants. And I understand my decision makes no sense because it shows no loyalty. It shows no regard for the fact that all these teams are in my division and I'm fine rooting for all of them. When I watched the Super Bowl, I didn't even know what team I was rooting for. Usually the one that's up because that way I can always be with the winner. That's where I am as a fan. I say that illustration to, to paint a picture as what I mentioned before, God does not show such mixed loyalty when it comes to those who are his redeemed and those who are not. God is very clear about how he sees sin, how he perceives false teachers. And so we live in a world, and I know some of you might say, no, Kenny, I'm never going to be a football fan like that. But if you take the cross section of your life and the life of 
uh, let's just say the American church, really the church around the world, it is very neutral. There are very few lines that are drawn, and if lines are drawn, they're rarely the lines that God would draw. And, and here's the reality when we look at these passages, and it's filled with illustrations about how God deals with sin through the ages and how he deals with false teachers and how he feels about that. And the fact is this, God does not tolerate the lies. God is not okay with, neutral, or have any mixed loyalties. God will rescue his redeemed and his wrath is on the lost, on those specifically who are false teachers. And that's who Peter is zeroing in on here. God has promised wrath on the liars and rescue for his children. And that wrath and rescue is what Peter is talking about, focusing in on these verses. God has made clear his utter disregard and zero tolerance for those who twist his word, no matter their motive, because God is opposed to false teachers and teaching. I want to read from Ezekiel briefly, uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through 9. It says this, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because ye have spoken vanity, and that word for vanity there in Hebrew is falsehood, because ye have spoken falsehood and seen lies, therefore, behold, I am against you, saith the Lord God, and mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity, that means they see false visions, and that divine lies. Neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord God. And I want you to realize something. God has never changed. That's a part of being God. He's unchanging. You go all the way back to the Old Testament, and he makes very clear that the false prophets, the liars that are there, seeing and saying they sing false visions. And if you read the history of Israel, through the Old Testament, you're going to see them being deceived oftentimes with false religion. But sadly, there's a lot of deceit with false prophets. And God is very drastic here. He says to them, you're not written in the book of Israel. You're not on my list. You're not part of my children is what he's saying to them. God is not neutral when it comes to false prophets. He never has been, and he's not going to start now that we are in the New Testament. And that's what Peter is driving us to, to understand it. Now, last week when we started with 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, uh, Peter wrote about some realities about them. And it says, but there were false prophets also among the people. In other words, this is something that's happened. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. And so what we had last week was we had the reality or the fact that we will encounter false teachers propagating false teaching, resulting in false followers. And they will face judgment because of it. We don't have to wonder about the outcome for false teachers, and we don't need to wonder if the true church will stand against them. And that's the promise we're going to see in these verses. God's wrath, His judgment, is poured upon false teaching, false teachers, false followers, yet his rescue is for his, those who follow truth. The true church will stand, and the promise is not just that we will have the ability to stand, it's that God will rescue us and, and make it possible for us to stand. God's wrath and his rescue are determined. 
And I'm going to use a past tense every time. In, in the economy of God, it is already done. It's already taken care of, determined. Verse 3b says this, Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And what we see here is the reality of current and future judgment. These false teachers are under God's wrath and will still be under it in the future. We have a host of false teachers propagating lies in our culture and beyond. You don't have to go far. I I can go here in the States and list many popular preachers, and they're not preaching truth at all. They are liars, and they're preaching a false gospel. I don't even like calling it a false gospel. They're just preaching, preaching falsehood. Don't even want to give them the word gospel. I want to give them that news. I'm in Guatemala, and there's still the same frauds there on the biggest of stages and on the smallest of stages. No matter where you go in the world, you encounter these false teachers, and they're popular, and there's a lot of people following them, and they have have money at their disposal. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want. And sometimes we sit back and we say, is God doing anything? What's happening? God is making very clear in his word, they're under his wrath right now, and they will be under his wrath in the future. This guy, Ken Woos, notes this. He says, the judgment is not idle. It is represented as a living thing, awake and expectant. That's something Peter wants you to understand as you drive into this passage, that what we're looking at is not something that will take place and not just something that has taken place, but instead it is alive. God's wrath and his rescue are alive. And here Peter's focusing in on what they're doing. It doesn't sleep, it says. It's not taking a nap. It's not taking time off. It's not. It's alive and expectant. It is functioning, which means there is a certainty of judgment They are not getting away with anything. We may look in our economy and say, oh, it looks like he's getting away with it. He thinks he's saved. He's walking around. Life is easy, breezy, no big deal. And the point is that they're getting away with nothing. The same guy, Ken Woos, had continued to note, and it says, I will not, what God is saying, not fail to reach the mark to which it was pointed from of old. God's judgment will not be diverted away from false teaching. They will pay for it. They are under his wrath and they are facing judgment and nothing is going to sway that. They're not going to trick their way out of the judgment that is coming to them. I put here as our first thought, that should wake us all up. What we see around us is not people getting one over on God. No one ever gets something over on God. And I'll push the pause button here in our own lives because we'll look at this and say, I'm not a false teacher. I'm going to preach the truth. I'm going to talk the truth. But we live our own life. We live our own schedule. We live our own hobbies. We live how we want to. And I'm going to go back to what Peter said about God's word and where we landed there. God's word, I think everyone sitting here believes it's the inspired word of God, but we don't live like it's the authoritative word of God. We say it's authoritative, but we don't treat it like that. And so you might sit and say, well, I'm not a false teacher. I'm not under this judgment. But yeah, you might say something, but your life negates it. And your life points to this idea that you're going to get something over on God, that everything's going to be fine in the end. 
And I'm trying to say that everything, and we're going to see it in the life of Lot. It's really the, the, the pinpoint illustration here. You will be rescued as his child, but you see the utter uselessness of your life. And so as we dive in, one thing to keep in mind is when you look around the room, hopefully not this room, but look around the room in life and you see people and you see false teaching, it's to see people as being under God's wrath and let that wake you up. It's not a malicious thing. You say, ah, they're under God's wrath. No, it's a heart-moving issue that tells you they're under God's wrath, and we've been left as an ambassador to preach his gospel and his glory. It should motivate us to look at reality and know what we're facing and the reality of their outcome, God's wrath accumulating against them. Uh, One writer said this, it was like the executioner, eternal damnation is personified, and it remains fully awake ready to administer God's just sentence of condemnation on those who falsify his word. Think of it that way. We think of eternity as all future, something that will happen someday. And the way Peter writes it is that this eternal punishment is an executioner that is awake and just waiting for that time. It is on guard. It is ready to act. As believers, we look forward to the eternal benefits of God's love and favor. They have only his wrath in front of them. When you look at the lost world, recognize what you're seeing. People who are going to be punished. People who are under wrath. And we've been given a calling to present Christ to this world, to present his glory, to present his gospel to them. Because that's the only thing that's going to matter in their life. We see his rescue, they will see his judgment. That truth should prod us in our work for his purpose. That truth makes clear the eternal needs of humankind. We should desire their repentance and submission, knowing they're under his wrath, unless they repent and believe. When we recognize what is coming, what is determined for the lost, what is, what is slated for them, then all other things should be subservient to the priority of preaching his gospel to them. And look, we live in a real world. We all have friends, I believe, that need the gospel. I think any one of us, if we pause for a second, know we have interactions and even close interactions with people that need the gospel. That's by God's design. He wants us to be out in the world and being his light. He wants us connecting. But here's the danger that we fall into is that our priority shifts with those people. We get engaged in the friendship, the camaraderie, the connectivity, and that's not bad. That's why you're friends with them. But we lose sight of why you are here to be their friend, why you are connected with them. You as a believer are an ambassador for Christ. So I know it's, it's awkward as can be, but if you're a teen and you're in high school and you have friends that are lost, you need to have a priority that's beyond games, sports, or whatever else. Your priority with your friends is to present the gospel and to be a light. It's easy to pick on teens in school because it's an easy target. Adults, we're even worse, aren't we? We have colleagues, we have friends, we have people we do different hobbies with, and what do we do? We prioritize the work and the hobby and everything else. doesn't mean you don't do your work, doesn't mean you don't enjoy the hobby, but what is your priority? God wants us to understand that as you look at that person, they are under his wrath because they don't have his salvation. And you are sent, you are in that sphere to make a difference. That is the wake-up call for us. That has been determined for them. Now, to make 
God's wrath and rescue crystal clear to us, Peter moves to illustrations. That's what we see with the, with the angels, with the world, with Noah, with Lot, with Sodom and Gomorrah. These are all illustrations of what God has done in the past and will therefore do in the future. We find examples of God's unfolding wrath and his unfolding rescue and realize that in essence, all of his wrath and rescue is decreed as sure as if it's already happened It is as though it is already delivered. That's the idea. Every word is going to point to the same thing, from determined to delivered and decided. I want you to understand that God is not changing. We have been given a call and a charge to act under his economy, under what he wants us to do. That's why we're left as ambassadors and left as light. That's why we don't go to heaven the second we're saved, because we have a work to accomplish for his purpose. So he listed here, verses 4 through 8, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto thus that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul. By the way, Lot is being painted as this beautiful picture of mercy and grace, but also this picture of absolute uselessness and waste. Because he was vexed, and then the next verb, vexed his righteous soul, means he vexed his own soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And by the way, in Greek, there is no there. He vexed himself from day to day with unlawful deeds. We understand it as it being their unlawful deeds. But in the Greek, what it's written in, it's trying to let you know that he allowed filth to vex his soul. It wasn't something that had to take place. In other words, he could have left. Peter, and I'll talk about that as emphasizing his rescue but also highlighting the fact that he chose a path that did not have him pursuing God's purpose. So what we see as we dive in is is what we encounter is balancing examples of wrath and rescue. And what it's showing us, and this is the overarching idea, is God's active hand in the world. It's showing us his sovereign hand, working in various circumstances and making clear the reality of his wrath and rescue on into eternity And so Peter begins with a look at fallen angels. These are the ones that specifically fell into fornication or perversion with women. And we see the delivered wrath on the perverse angels. Now, the word for if is really better translated since or in view of the fact. The if is not if like we say it. Well, if you do this, you'll get punished. That's how we see the word if. And to be a little bit geeky on grammar, the if is what's called a fulfilled conditional in Greek. In other words, it's not if it will happen, it's it's happened. And so it's since this happened. It's speaking of certainty. Peter says here of them, take a look at those fallen angels that attempted to pervert the line of Christ by embodying human males. What happened to them? And I'll give a little background on this. We talked about it a lot in 1 Peter But this is not referring to all fallen angels, because fallen angels, many of them still roam the earth serving the cause of Satan. When you speak of demons, you speak of the spiritual warfare we're engaged in, that is fallen angels serving Satan's purpose. They will face judgment and are under 
judgment, but are not confined currently. The angels that are chained, or actually better, locked in the abyss or locked into hell, are awaiting more judgment, yet currently are under judgment. One that did not permit them freedom, one that had them in hell. And the word used means to consign to Tartarus. It's the place in Greek mythology for the punishment of the most wicked spirits, and especially one of their rebellious gods, Tantalus. And so what Peter is doing is he's taking current culture, known culture and terminology, to emphasize something. There's an ongoing punishment, and he's highlighting the depth of wickedness of these fallen angels. They've All fallen angels are wicked. He's just showing how wicked they were because these angels were coming in and in their perversion, following through with an activity that was designed to pollute the line of Christ. They were trying to thwart the cause of redemption by doing what they did. Now, their future punishment, and we find that in Revelations 20, 14, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So they're consigned to hell, chained there. Think, how can it get worse? Well, he's going to throw them in the lake of fire. So there's a second punishment that comes. The judgment on these angels has not lingered. Their damnation is not asleep. They have been delivered into, which means given over into the hands, and that's the idea of being placed in the pit. These specifically perverse angels, given over their desires and their attempt to corrupt the path to Christ, are existing under judgment. There is or there was no delay. God severely judges all those who oppose him and his truth. And then he transitioned, just as the world of Noah's day faced their judgment. And to place this, Genesis 6, you read about them in Genesis 6, and then right after that, you're walking into the flood because the world had become so rampantly wicked. And that's where God says God's example of current wrath moves from the angels and now highlights his wrath on the perverse world. Noah's world, and there's no real comparisons you can do, it seems society moves through cycles. Sometimes it seems more healthy or spiritual. Sometimes it seems awful and wicked. Uh, We are living in a society that feels just rampantly wicked. In the last 20 years, uh, it seems like we're moving at a rapid pace to be the most perverse generation of all time. I say that because Noah's world, I would say, was probably even worse. That, That the wickedness had reached such a level that it'd be hard to define what was taking place. Just to put it in perspective, he preached for a hundred some years and no one believed him. They were that entrenched in wickedness. Now, this wrath on this world, they were not spared. They were judged physically in the flood. And God says they were not godly. Instead, they were proudly destitute of reverential awe towards God. A hundred years of impending physical doom from God, a hundred plus years of of preaching to them saying, you are going to face this. This is going to happen. You need to be held accountable to God. And this whole world said, no, thank you. I'm not accountable to them. R.C. Sprawl notes of them. He says, people did what they wanted to do, and they claimed that no one had a right to take away their autonomy. 
That's why I wanted to bring up our generation, because what the world during Noah's time struggled with is making themselves into God. They were their own God. They would not answer to God. They would not be accountable to his standard. They would not adjust their life in any way, shape, or form. They would do what they wanted to do. That's that world, the perversion of that world. Contrasted with this complete judgment, though, is a beautiful picture of salvation. This is the preservation of a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Peter turns in the midst of describing God's wrath to look at the miraculous rescue of Noah. And I define him as saved and zealous for God. Noah was preserved by God through the flood. When it says the eighth person, it's counting his, himself, his children, his wife, and their wives. Noah was preserved by God through the flood. Noah was committed to proclaiming truth no matter what the world was and thought. He was a herald of righteousness. And we actually find that out from Peter, not necessarily in the Old Testament. The spokesperson, and that's what it meant, for the Holy One. So what we see was that Noah was useful to God and preached his truth clearly. (coughs) There's an importance here, because as I mentioned before, when we look at the rescue, we're going to see Noah, the herald of righteousness, And we're going to see Lot, the useless panderer of sin, both rescue because both were redeemed, but you see two different ways of living your life. What you see consistent is wrath. So we saw wrath on the spiritual world, the fallen angels that engage. We see wrath on this now perverse world. And so Peter's looked at these things, and now he's moving on. He moves from spiritual warfare, angels who are trying to pervert the cause of Christ, fallen angels that just even went further in sin. Then you look at a whole world that is engaged in sin and their judgment. And now God's attention comes down to a specific culture further down the timeline. Genesis 6, now we're in the flood. Now we're moving into the time of Lot. And we're going to go and dive into a specific time, a specific culture. And we look at God's wrath on a perverse society. This is seen in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's interesting is we are so used to understanding them in light of their immorality that sometimes we overlook the fact that they were known also for their affluence and their ease. So Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't just wickedness. That was plenty to not be there. But it was the luxurious life. Cities that had things so easy that they had outgrown the idea of God and look a lot like our culture and world. What do people say oftentimes? Well, if you need God, go ahead, you can have God. I don't need God. If you need that crutch, you use that crutch. If you need a crutch of religion or a crutch of church, you realize what they're saying? I've outgrown God. I've outgrown that concept. If you go back uh, through history on different philosophers that have polluted the mind uh, and the thinking of our world and academics, Their whole premise was this idea that you don't need God or that there's life existing or explaining life without God. Your whole premise of evolution is a guy that didn't want to acknowledge God, so we have to make up a reason for all these things happening. And so when you really get down to it, evolution is a rejection of faith. It's a faith-based idea to get rid of God because we want to find a way not to need God. And so what we have in Sodom and Gomorrah is not just rank immorality, but you have a society that just said, we don't need God. They lived in a very beautiful valley, very fertile valley. What they needed was right in front of them. And these are people that don't see a need for God. 
The response to their blatant sin and disregard for God's existence, authority, and natural order of creation was they were reduced to ashes, physical punishment, condemned to destruction, eternal judgment, and then made a forever example, a warning of both physical and eternal judgment. Yet Lot was delivered from this destruction. The man who chose this wicked place as his residence that knowingly stayed was kept from this destruction. In the midst of a very specific and clear example of an individual society's ungodliness and what unfolds for them, we now see the rescue of Lot. I call saved yet swayed by the world. Lot was tormented but still responsible for the situation in which he found himself. Now, Peter lets us know that Lot was worn out by the wicked and filthy manner of life found in Sodom. Filthy in that they showed no restraint regarding God's law and did whatever they wanted to gratify their fleshly desires. Sound familiar? Pause for a second. And how our world thinks. If you bring up God or the Bible, that's just what you believe. It's not what I believe. Our world is driven to do whatever they want. That's the filthiness. That's how it's defined. Their whole existence was centered around unbridled lust. And sometimes we hear that word and it sends us only down the context of immorality. Understand this, unbridled lust is I'm going to do whatever I want, think whatever I want, act whatever I want. I'm going to fulfill whatever desire comes up in my life, whatever that may be. It's not just immorality. Yet Lot is shown to be the active agent in the vexing of his soul. And Peter makes that clear. Their deeds in life were the cause, but Lot is the one that allowed it to happen by staying there. And Peter uses certain verbs on purpose. He uses that idea, he vexed himself. He he caused this, and he does that because his situation was due to his choice to live there. He actively afflicted his righteous soul. And by righteous doesn't mean he was the best person in the world. It meant that he was redeemed. Your righteousness, righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. It is completely dirty. There's nothing you do that's righteous. His righteous soul, by definition, scripturally means redeemed. And that's a, a great way to think about it. His redeemed soul was afflicted. Yet God rescued Lot because he was saved. Lot was rescued because of God's unmerited grace and mercy. Don't miss that. God rescued Lot because of who God is, not because of who Lot acted or did function. I put here, God rescued him even though Lot's life, sadly, was not fruitful for God. Why? God rescued Lot because of who God is. Lot was useless for God. Peter's emphasis in this passage, I don't want to miss the the focus, is on God's rescue of his own, regardless of their fruit, yet hinting to us in his verb choices that God was not brushing aside Lot's culpability. Peter is teaching really two lessons here. The first lesson, and the most critical for us, is to recognize this, God's redemption is based on God's character. God's redemption centers in who God is. And that's a wonderful assurance to have because I would not mock my salvation based on who I am at all. I want it founded and grounded in him. And so we see God's beautiful grace and mercy in both Noah and Lot. Yet Peter is also teaching lessons on how to live your life. And that's why you see Noah and you see Lot because they're drastically different. Peter's saying, if you're going to be a believer, be like Noah 
and don't be like Lot when it comes to the realm of the rescued. Peter is letting us see what we should not be doing as believers and what the outcome of doing that looks like. So I put here as kind of a side note or a brief moment to explore this insight because the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to share it for a reason. This is the lesson on Lot. First, Scripture interprets Scripture. There's nothing in Genesis, by the way, that lets us know that Lot's redeemed. Nothing. There's also not much in Genesis about, uh, about Noah preaching or being a herald of righteousness. And so we're getting insight into two people. One thing you want to walk away from is Scripture, interpret Scripture. How do we know that Lot's redeemed? Because God told us he was. We don't see it in his life at all. We know it because he told us that's the case. Nothing in Genesis points to Lot's spiritual condition, yet Peter, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clarifies it for us. And I'm going to say it again, always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now that clarity makes possible a poignant message for believers in the midst of a sin-stricken world. What not to do if we're to stand distinct for Christ. Instructions on how not to be a useless Christian. I'm going to do a little quick history lesson, and I'm sure I'm sucking up a lot. I have plenty of time. I looked at my watch, it's 1125. I won't look again until I'm done, so I finished on time. I like that. Genesis 18 recounts the impending destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's petition to save the cities if 10 righteous could be found there. 10 in a city. Sadly, 10 righteous are not living in those cities. So God sends his angels to destroy the cities and they enter Sodom and find Lot sitting in the gate or at the gate. That is indicative of Lot's influence in that society and his authority. Lot is one of the people who decides cases for the city. He is a man of authority and he's a man of influence. Don't miss this. He's not used his influence or authority for anything good. He may not like what they're doing. He has vexed his soul, but he's accomplished nothing while in the city. Yet he's not just some beggar on a street with no option to reach people. He decides cases for people. He is one of the elders. He's an authority. He's never used his influence and authority for God's purpose. Genesis 19, 1, 2, 3 says this, And there came two angels of Sodom and even, and Lot sat at the gate or in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned into him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Lot did what is typical in that culture, and you still see remnants of that today. Hospitality is a big thing, and you bring in a stranger. But Lot knew the perversion of Sodom, and he knew the depth of their wickedness. And sure enough, Sodom came seeking the visitors and demanded that Lot send them out. And even after being struck blind, they still, it says in Scripture, wore themselves out trying to find the door. Just put that in mind. You are so consumed to do sin that even when you're struck blind, you're not swayed from pursuing sin. You wear yourself out trying to find the door to sin. Sodom was wholly committed to engaging in the filthy desires of their hearts, and nothing could stop them. Many of us know the story. Lot is told to leave and gather his family. Only his wife and unmarried daughters follow him. He had other daughters. He had son-in-laws. They did not 
go along. He hasn't even reached his family when it comes to Christ and authority and influence. His wife turns back and becomes a pillar of salt. Lot and his daughters end up hiding in a cave where the daughters get Lot intoxicated and commit incest with them, all in the name of carrying on the family line. The children born to this illicit affairs end up being the Moabites and the Ammonites, enemies of Israel, who are God's chosen people. That's Lot's life. His legacy just gets worse after he's rescued out of Lot. Lot was redeemed but lived a useless Christian life, staying in Sodom when he should never have moved there. It all began when Lot and Abraham's workers were arguing over pasture, over water, whatever it may be, and they divided the land. Abraham, though he didn't need to do this, culturally Abraham had the right to choose He gave Lot first choice. He even prays to God and says, God, how am I going to make it? Because Lot chooses the best grass. Lot chose the well-watered plains of Jordan, good for business, Genesis 13, 10, and ignored the wickedness of the cities there, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 13, 13. Because in Genesis 13, 12, we read something. It says this, before long, we find Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom, moved into the plain, made sure he could see Sodom. And before long, we know what happened. He moved in. Lot had a warning. Those cities were taken over. Abram had to swoop in to rescue all of them. Lot still moves back in, drawn like a moth to the flame into the luxury and ease of life there and growing increasingly numb to living separate for God. He just stayed and vexed his righteous soul from day to day. I'm going to push a pause button briefly in your mind. You might say, Kenny, I'm bothered by the sin around me. So was Lot. But he stayed in Sodom and he ended up being useless. How about being bothered by the sin around you and making a change because of it? Instead of just sitting there complaining about the sin around you, vexed his righteous soul from day to day because he could not break from the world. Lot is the sad picture of the path to Christian uselessness yet still an amazing picture of God's mercy and fulfillment. His identity as a believer was not erased by his failure to live as one, and so God rescued him. And that, to me, is is still the overarching point that Peter is making. Lot failed in life across the board. I read his legacy so you understand that nothing about his life ended up in any good. His offspring that survived from a wicked affair ended up as enemies of God's chosen people. Yet Lot was Christ's. He was redeemed. And so God rescued him. And I put here, what an amazing God we serve who keeps his word based on his character and not ours. What a promise and assurance. But we need to take home something from these history lessons. God's judgment is not stalled. His wrath is delivered but so is his rescue. And what we get here is a call to not sit idly by waiting for rescue, but instead to actively be engaged in living for Christ and watching how God turns that into functioning for his unique purpose. We're called to be a rescued Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and not a rescued Lot, a panderer of sin. Both redeemed, but distinctively opposite in fulfilling God's purpose with their lives. So as you're looking at this, what about your life looks like Lot? And what about your life looks like Noah? And recognize this, you're not going to blend the two. Be a Noah, don't be Lot. 
Because the reality is God is not wavering on what he will do. That action has already been decided. Verse 9 says this, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. God knows how to rescue his own, and he will. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government. God understands our trials, our temptations, and he is delivering us out of them, or the word there, through them. Those trials will not waylay us. And, and one person noted this. No, it doesn't say that God delivers us away from our trials. He delivers us out of or through our trials. Still, that rescue has been decided. God does not look into the life of his, his redeemed of his children and say, I wonder if I'm going to rescue him or her. He has already decided that rescue is orchestrated for you. That is an amazing promise and assurance. But God's wrath is also fixed on those who twist his word and rebel against his authority. Them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Now I want to touch on this. The, the Greek word translated government is literally dominion. And it's going all the way back to verse 1 of this chapter. It's referring to authority and specifically the authority of Jesus Christ. The reality is Christ ruling over their life is the constant sticking point for false teachers. Notice what was permeating the fallen angels, the authority of Jesus Christ. What are we going to try to do? We're going to pollute the line of man so we can ruin the promise of Christ. You get to the world that had a whole world that lived their own autonomy. They said, we don't need God. We don't want God. We have nothing to do with God. It doesn't matter how much you tell us about it. No matter how much you warn us, we're not going to do anything. Eight people survived the flood because the whole world says, I'll not submit to God. You come to Sodom and Gomorrah who had outgrown God. They don't need God. They're fine. Everything works fine. They'll live out their desire how they want. They get struck blind and wear themselves out pursuing sin. If nothing won't wake you up like being struck blind, I don't know what will. Every chance, every warning, what's the issue? They want to be king of their lives, so they do whatever they desire. False teachers and false followers and these types of individuals, the world, they look down their noses at the thought of submission to God. And then I put a couple words. How often have we done the same? In what way have you ignored the warning of blindness and ignored the warning of impending doom and punishment that is preached and proclaimed to you? How much have you wanted to be king of your life? And how often have we looked arrogantly at those submitting to God because we crave our own authority and disdain those who would so simply follow or submit to God? As we look at them when we're outside of that and we view them as simpletons, their life is, oh, you're just a simpleton. Life's more complicated than that. And God says life is not more complicated than that. You're either going to chase your life or you're going to follow God. That's simple. And I can promise you this, you may not be the worst person you can be, but you're not anything worthy of his holiness. You're going to pursue him and his holiness, or you're going to pursue your life and be some bad version. Maybe not the worst, but you're definitely not what he's called you to be. Those thoughts, when we think them, categorize us with false teachers. It places us in the unjust, unclean group those who pursue after the evil nature, chasing that which defiles, no matter how good it seems. 
When you chase your life, you replicate the fallen angels, a wicked world that's destroyed by the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah, because what you're saying to God is, you will not have authority over me. And that's the whole point. Those who despise government, those who despise authority. Whose authority? Christ's authority to rule. The church was wondering about judgment and the reality of it. They were swayed by the temptation to live sensual lives and the right to justify it, what the false teachers were really promoting to them. And Peter makes clear that such lives sit under God's current wrath. Spurning Christ's rule, his authority, was no laughing matter and would not be overlooked. And this is, as this guy named Green notes, he says, the God of justice cannot be flouted. He cannot be openly disregarded, but the God of grace can be relied on. What we see in these verses is the promise of God's judgment of wicked heresies and sin, the undeniable reality of payment for wickedness, yet also the beautiful promise of rescue, even when we are utterly useless. And I think that's a beautiful picture of how salvation works, right? We don't earn it. There's nothing we do that, that, that brings it or gains it for us. Yet God calls us to live a life for him, to be a Noah and not to be a lot. We may be wondering, though, how will we endure? Are things going to be made right? And Peter's made clear to us, the wicked are currently under God's wrath and wait future judgment. They're getting nothing over on God, but instead heaping on themselves punishment. The redeemed are currently under God's rescue and await a future glorification with him. We are not forgotten or on our own, but instead have the individual attention and love of the sovereign, all-powerful God. So let's rest in our rescue and be prompted to live useful lives. Be proclaimers of God's truth and righteousness like Noah. And he's not perfect. He has problems. He has sin. But, but we're highlighting the idea that he's a proclaimer of God's truth and righteousness. And let's avoid and actively turn away from the sin of the world. Be willing to forgo its luxury and opulence to not be like redeemed Lot, who though saved was utterly useless for his redeemer. Rest in his power and act for his purpose. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to study your word, to understand what you're trying to teach us. Peter is writing a letter to churches knowing that they're facing lies. They're facing the temptation to follow sensual or sensual type of teaching and living, to, to follow teaching that permits them to follow their sin, but still feel like they are redeemed. Teaching that's designed to manipulate them. And he's warning the churches to center everything on your word, on your truth, and to live for you, to recognize the authority of Christ over their lives and not grab hold of the, of the fickle promise given by false teachers that you can be the king of your own life, that you can rule and still be righteous. Instead, we recognize that we submit to your authority. We submit to your rule over our lives. That what's, that's what it means to be your children. Help us to recognize that. Help us as we live our lives to one rest in the promise that you give us that we will be rescued, that we're already rescued in your economy, but also prompt us forward to be proclaimers of righteousness, heralds representing you and not representing our own lives. Help us to break from the world and instead preach Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear about your salvation and to give you glory. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.